Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. In this Word on the Street special, we look at the impact of the Silicon Valley bank failure and if this could signal the start of a new financial crisis. With Sarah Gresty, Head of Investments, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Welcome to a special edition of Word on the Street, covering a story that really broke in the truest sense of the word towards the end of last week. Silicon Valley Bank, which only a few months ago was the 16th largest bank in the US, became within a matter of days the second largest bank failure in US history. You would have probably seen some panicky headlines over the weekend, wondering whether this is a replay of the global financial crisis. So we thought a good opportunity to do a quick podcast to talk through some of the issues. And Will, I'm delighted to have you on today to help make sense of this for our listeners. So first things first, what happened for this bank to fail? Sarah, it's a good question. So Silicon Valley Bank was a huge beneficiary of the booming kind of venture capital industry in the early pandemic in the US, um, enjoying kind of breathtaking growth in deposits in a very, very short space of time. Now, they decided to match that deposit growth largely with aggressive purchases of long maturity US treasury bonds and mortgage backed securities. Now, that's not too sinister in its, in, in, in itself. Uh, you know, lending to the US government is a relatively safe activity, as we've talked about before. Um, but these assets took a big plunge in price uh, when the Federal Reserve began raising interest rates sharply last year. So they were really, in a way, hit by a double whammy. They got whacked directly on their interest rate exposure, which, unlike many of their peers, particularly the larger ones, was pretty much unhedged, i.e. there were no offsetting or not much in the way of offsetting exposures to soften the potential blows that came from higher interest rates, therefore lower bond prices. Uh, However, on top of that, tighter monetary policy also damaged the bank's tech industry clientele. So higher rates squeezed the bank's assets while making big deposit, while causing big deposit outflows, which is obviously not a very nice combination. The end result is that the bank was likely in mark-to-market terms insolvent at the start of the year. That's also not necessarily kind of the end game. Banks don't have to mark all their assets to market for a reason. And with more time, uh, Silicon Valley Bank might have raised enough money, earned enough profit, seen its assets appreciate, or some combination thereof to stay operational. However, when a critical mass of depositors noticed that the bank wasn't in ideal financial shape, that their money was largely uninsured, and that other people were already thinking about leaving, the incentive became to be the first ones out the door. So rumour has it actually, as it goes, and it is only a rumour, that they were literally like 20 minutes away from getting enough cash together to stave off the end. When Peter Thiel, uh, you know, the famous, always many things, famous billionaire, uh, sort of uh, political uh, activist, showed up uh, and advised companies to pull their money out. Time will tell, of course, various biographers will already be sharpening their quills, I'm sure. But interestingly enough, like in this situation, having a fairly sophisticated, centralized, undiversified deposit base did not help. Once major VC players, venture capital players had started telling their portfolio companies to withdraw their money, word spread quick and the exit got busy quick. That's my summary. Okay, are you blaming Twitter then for the for the quick information sharing? <laughs> well, it does make the bank run quite, look quite different. You know, it looks quite slow, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. You can't queue up anymore. You just go into go into your uh, your banking app. But yes. Okay. So next question: 
Could this have really blown up the system? Yes, I think probably. I mean, you know, ba- uh, you know, if you think about it, bank runs don't really require logic in a way. That's that that's sort of the point. The bank run in Mary Poppins is actually a nice little explainer. I think catchy tunes too. Um, Please don't sing. No, <laughs> my children were so embarrassed when I started joining in a song uh, at the weekend. The important point, though, I think about the global financial system is that it, it's always, this is going to sound a bit unnerving, but please bear with me, but it, it's always been a confidence trick if you think about it. If you tell me that the five pound in my pocket that I'm waving at you is worthless uh, and you persuade enough people to agree with you, then it's worthless, just a machine washable piece of fabric with some nice pictures on it. So with regards to SVB in particular, yes, its problems, unhedged risk exposures were pretty idiosyncratic, pretty specific to SVB. These exposures were allowable because SVB was sufficiently small to be able to slip under uh, something called the net stable funding ratios rules. However, the size of depositors meant that a huge majority of deposits were not insured. So the FDIC, and I'm sorry for the acronyms, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, pays out up to $250,000 or makes you complete up to $250,000. And that's versus the typical SVB, keep on to get it, it's very difficult to keep on saying that, Silicon Valley Bank depositor with around $3.5 million. So worst case, if you think about it, if the authorities had done nothing extra, you would likely find every single entity in the US with more than $250,000 in any one bank would be now moving it around frantically to get all cash into accounts with less than the $250,000 insured limit. So lots of banks would have had to sell lots of assets very quickly to pay out fleeing depositors. So you get fire sales, chaos, all the rest of it. So the short answer is yes, it could have been a real problem. Yeah, and I guess the interesting thing, if you think of Silicon Valley Bank, it is easier to say it without the acronym, isn't it? Is, it? it is. is just how much some of these technology startups actually have in cash that mm. they need to deposit in their bank, which is a, a little bit different from the likes of you true, and I who true. have smaller amounts. Yes, yes, that is very true. That is very, very true. I wouldn't compare my situation to a tech startup. <laughs> so maybe thinking back, and the other question that's on everybody's mind at the mm-hmm. moment is, does this explain what went wrong in in 2007, 2008, you know, what's the linkage there? I've heard many people kind of assume that the world reached a level of indebtedness that basically made a crisis inevitable. What's the difference between 2023 and 2007? Well, I mean, hopefully a lot. And and you're right, that is quite a common interpretation. Personally, I would lean against it for a number of reasons. Actually, I don't think 0708 was a solvency crisis, as you described, one of sort of aggregate indebtedness, but actually one of some something called liquidity. We go back to, and liquidity means all sorts of things, but I'll try and sort of explain it a bit. So we go back to that five pound example, and rather than just a five pound note, replace it with an entire bank, replace it with Lehman's and some of the other financial institutions in the immediate firing line right at the beginning of that crisis. Yes, there was a lot of complexity and more besides. However, this was a moment when the authorities decided to enforce a degree of moral hazard. They wanted to use this you know, this crisis is a kind of teachable moment for risk appetite, uh, risk taking in the financial sector. So when Lehman's was allowed to fail, confidence evaporated instantaneously. You can see it in interbank lending rates, which is as good as a kind of pulse of the global financial system. Suddenly there's this kind of, there's this kind of heart attack and the confidence trick implicit in the modern financial system was just suddenly revealed. And the lesson from that moment, which Sunday's action from the US authorities shows an appreciation of is that the benefits of moral hazard, uh, these kind of teachable moments, are far, far 
outweighed in this in the modern financial system by the costs of imposing it. The other thing I to note, I think, and this is a general misunderstanding about debt, and obviously, you know, a sermon on debt is obviously to be taken with a pinch of salt from someone working for a bank. However, remember that Earth cannot be, this is something my old boss used to tell us, the planet Earth cannot be a net debtor. Basic double entry bookkeeping for every liability, there must be an asset. And at the global level, these simply have to net out. And until bankers find a way to syndicate debt intergalactically, some poor unwitting Martian forced to choke down some uh, <laughs> subprime exposure, let's say, then we, we, we need to be wary of those kind of global debt narratives that seem to be so popular. And actually, I think if you look at the moment, I don't think the levels of indebtedness at the aggregate sort of consumer businesses and government level uh, at that concerning for the most part when you look at most uh, many of the developed governments uh, again I think that's that's not so much the problem that doesn't mean there are no problem areas but it's just we need to worry about the right uh, the right stuff and not worry waste time on the wrong stuff if you know what I mean I do thank you so that makes sense but the other thing that I think is an interesting to look at from this situation is how quickly the authorities have stepped in and kind of given a solution to the market and to the bank so what's your thoughts on that well yeah I mean you rightly say like last night I mean you know we were communicating over the weekend and worrying what was coming next and sort of saying you know this was very much in the institution's court now and yes they've gone gone above and above and beyond I think in the measures that they've deployed will be made whole and regulators also unveiled a new way to give banks access to emergency funds. So the Federal Reserve has said it would offer assistance through a new bank term funding program, making it easier for banks to borrow uh, from it in a crisis. Uh, and I think the point is, you know, uh, uh, as we've just discussed, you know, it's, it's about almost doing too much in these situations and, uh, and worrying about other sort of things a bit later. So building the confidence back very quickly. Yes, that's key. That's key. So we're recording this in the UK and there's also a Silicon Valley bank within the UK. So can you explain what's happened here? Well, there's a slightly different resolution in the UK, I think, as we've we've seen. So A, you've got what's going on in the US and here, one of the large high street banks has taken the at the UK assets lock stock as far as I can work out, which seems to be, again, from what we're hearing in our BCT and EIS pipelines from our fellow colleagues who work in that area, that that is providing some reassurance in that area as well, isn't it? So hopefully the combination of these actions is more or less, it's not that we can be sort of totally out of the woods, but yeah, uh, sort of nothing to see here for the moment. Okay, so that's my next question. (laughs) Are all concerns over now? Now here's the time for hubris, isn't it? Yes, everything's fine. Nothing to see here. No, I mean, uh, Sarah, you know, concerns are never over. That's why I have so little hair. There's always something around the corner, whether we think we can see it or not. And that's always the point that we're trying to make. I I think the point that I would emphasize here, though, and speaking to the team, this is uh, something that we sort of we agree on at the moment is that Silicon Valley Bank and some of the other worry errors, and you have got a couple of other names, banks that 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 are a little bit problematic at the moment, they're emblematic of not so much the systemic sort of threat, but more the dangers of extrapolation. I mean, if you spoke to most investors around the world in 2019 and even 2020, 
and for many years before that, and ask them for a long-term forecast of the direction of real interest rates, UK, US, wherever you want, real interest rates, inflation, even certain parts of the technology sector, you know, what was what was going to do well in five, 10 years time, you would have had a very, very unified response. Real interest rates have been trending lower for decades. Inflation has been well behaved for much of that time in certain parts of the technology sector. At that point, they, you know, really look capable of eating the world without having to chew too much. Those forecasts were mostly a function of extrapolation, just, you know, the recent, even a slightly distant past used to tell us reliably, in inverted commas, what was coming. You know, contracts, agreements, investments, even psychology became baked around those certainties. And again, I'm using the speech mark inverted commas. But now you saw something similar with the blow up in, you know, I mean, if you think about it, the blow up in pension land following the infamous mini budget in the UK last year, those long term trends in ever lower interest rates basically encouraged lots of skinny dipping on the parts of the world's many of the world's investors. That skinny dipping is now in the process of being revealed by central bankers urgently trying to crush inflation. That tide, you know, the tide is going out extremely sharply, you might say. To that end, a good deal of humility remains appropriate to your question. However, you know, I think from our client's perspective, and not for all of us who need to worry about investments internally, just remember that as demonstrated in the last couple of days, policy makers have a much better, fuller, more up-to-date playbook than they had pre the great financial crisis and even the pandemic. And although the market adjustment is painful, it does leave prices, valuations and yields in a better place, more robustly positioned for a range of potential futures rather than a simple continuation of the recent past. And most importantly, all of this is kind of irrelevant with regards to your long-term returns. What you're trying to access is that long-term productivity story. And that is pretty exciting at the moment, in my opinion. Maybe moving it back to talk about something other than SBB for a minute. So the market has seemed to soften their expectations of what's coming from the Federal Reserve at their next meeting, even in the face of still hot data, as you might call it, Friday's US un- unemployment, I was going to say, Friday's US employment report certainly seemed in that kind of hot category. And we have CPI inflation this week, amongst other things. What's are you thinking is going to happen next week or this week? It's still the SBB story, actually. You've not escaped it as much as you think. because, uh, Yeah, because what you've seen since, like, the news broke is that investors have really sharply changed their expectations of what's coming in terms of US interest rate policy. I'm not going to lie, I'm a little bit confused about this. And speaking to the team and others over the weekend, I'm not alone in that confusion. The degree to which expected interest rates have been taken out by investors just on the basis that essentially the Federal Reserve will feel sufficiently uncertain about the effects and the ripples of what's going on, that they will feel uncomfortable in sort of doing what was priced only a few days ago at a 50 basis point increase. And and that was, if you remember, like last week at the beginning of last week, the Fed chair, uh, Jay Powell, he was testifying that, you know, he was basically trying to encourage the market to believe in a 50 basis point uh, rate hike. And then you had that very perky employment report at the end of the week. There's a lot going on at the moment, like I say, but like I said, it's a hard time to be a central oh, banker, isn't you know, it? It's a hard time to be a central banker and it's a hard time to be an investor. I, again, I would go back to that point. I can't emphasize enough how much investors should be trying to keep their eyes on the horizon at times like this. These are exactly the moment when sticking with your long term plans are both so difficult and so important. It's a self-serving message. We, of course, want you to continue to hold your funds and portfolios with us. However, happily, this is where our interests and yours 
I'm not talking about you, Sarah. I'm talking about all of our clients, although you are a client. We're totally aligned. Um, and the trick to investing is never about ducking in and out based on incoming news flow and trying to get it just right. It's about getting in in diversified fashion and sticking with it patiently while global productivity drags your savings higher, unevenly, as the last week suggests, but higher yet over time. That's the expectation or the hope anyway. Okay, so maybe thinking a little bit about the UK. So you've already mentioned, obviously, SVB Bank being purchased by HSBC here in the UK. But we have a budget coming up as well this week. Anything in particular we should be looking out for that maybe is different now than you expected last week? Uh, well, yes. I mean, obviously, the budget is a uh, budget preview is, is, is leaked and previewed pretty well in the newspapers. So I won't, I won't sort of try and uh, double count too much. But I mean, uh, you are expected to see a bit of a gift from the Office of Budget Responsibility, the OBR, in all likelihood, primarily thanks to or in part thanks to lower energy costs having a net positive effect on future government finances, expected future government finances relative to November, if you think about it. However, the feeling is that the Chancellor will want to be relatively cautious. There is expected to be, there are expected to be some measures to stimulate labour supply a little bit. Remember, this is a particularly UK problem. There was a huge decline in labour force participation around the world during the pandemic or in many countries during the pandemic. But the UK really sticks out, interestingly, um, in not getting much of a recovery in that participation. It's a mixture of early retirements, long-term sick and various other stuff. It's an important problem for us to try and solve, to be honest, as this is also a contributor to inflation concerns too. And Chancellor Hunt has also talked about, you know, thinking about how to get investment coming back into the UK and all those sorts of things. A lot of that is is beyond the ability of this budget to solve, in truth. Uh, they just haven't got the tools quite yet to really change those behaviours. But yes, it'll be interesting all the same. Yeah, and I should say we're going to have a special word on the street where we're having yes. Olivia in from our government relations team and we've got Emma from EY to the unpack. Real, the real experts. The real experts. Yes. You said it, not me. But yeah, yes. we've got the real experts in later this week to talk around the budget. So maybe the final question mm-hmm. is we've talked a lot around the markets, what's happening, how does, what are you and the team thinking around how this plays out in our portfolios? Good question, Sarah. I mean, I I would say a couple of things here. I mean, well, two brief things. I promise I won't rattle on forever. But this crisis and what we were talking about there with the kind of the dangers of extrapolation, I go on about this because the avoidance of extrapolation is core to our investment philosophy overall. This is how, this is the organizing principle around our funds and portfolios in many ways. And if you think about it from the way that we organize our strategic asset allocation, so we've talked about that a lot, you know, where you've got very clever people mathematically imagining hundreds of thousands of viable potential futures and trying to find the mix of assets that sits most robustly in all of them. We've got one of those refreshes coming up quite shortly and enforced diversification across asset classes. All of that is about a humility around the future and not just trying to sort of invest around the future that extends in a straight path from the recent past, but also actually so sort of weird stuff like we try and keep a lot of our investors from meeting clients too much. I know that sounds like a weird thing, but what we don't want is, in a way, what we need to be is dispassionate. And we don't want to trend follow. We don't want to herd too much. What we want is to be able to make difficult decisions on behalf of clients because we're not as emotionally attached to their money as they understandably are. That sounds like an odd thing. You want us to care about your money? We do, but we, we really care. But in a way, it's, it's the way in which we care. But also other things like, for instance, you know, for much of the last economic cycle, if you looked at it, we invested across styles. So we didn't just invest in the popular 
stocks, the popular sectors, we're always sure to keep a foot in the dustier corners of the stock market and other markets for exactly what has happened in many ways, the futures that don't extend in a straight line from the recent past, where value stocks, where all sorts of different uh, companies that weren't popular in the last economic cycle become popular again. So that's really, like I say, it's a, it's a massive thing for us and it's really important. And so therefore we feel that you know our funds and portfolios are well set up for the moment. In terms of our tactical positioning, so remember those little bits around the edges of our portfolio where our funds and portfolios where we have a team of specialists trying to add little performance cherries to that overall strategic asset allocation cake. They are currently sort of positioned a, a little bit for sort of darker, darker economic times ahead. So, you know, they're underweight developed equities, you know, stocks in the developed world. Uh, and they're also long now, 30 year, they're lending to the US government, basically. Uh, so long duration is the way that we would describe it. But one of the things there seems to be just quite a lot priced in at that uh, in that place. So, yes. It's an interesting world. And I think, you know, just remember, humility is the best thing, but there is every reason for cautious optimism about the future. What we're finding right now is that a lot of the froth that existed in capital markets at the beginning of 2021 has been blown off. That's quite a painful process for investors who were in. But you've got the joint thing right now, which is A, those capital market expected returns look a bit juicier. And I think actually the future looks a bit juicier as well, thanks to the advent of various technologies that are coming online. So the cause to be an investor right now and be in diversified assets, I think it's very strong, personally. I would say that again, but I do actually, I, agree you, I believe yeah. that. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's a good time to close your eyes and not listen to all of the people telling you that the world is going to end, because I don't think it is. I hope it's not anyway. Okay, well, Will, thank you very much for unpacking that with us. A lot to digest, but also nice to end on a little bit of an optimistic note as well. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for this special Word on the Street. Look forward to speaking to you all again soon. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.